Good morning and welcome again to Vintage Church. If I had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Nate and the lead pastor here. Um, pulling a little double duty today with the worship team. Every now and then they let me get up here. So thank you guys for letting me join you and uh, has had a lot of fun with them. We have some great leaders here. I don't know where Beth is. I think she's on her way maybe. But Beth, thank you so much for the great job that you do here. I'm still catching my breath. Bless God. I, 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 I got to tell you guys something. So I'm an old worship pastor. One of the things I learned is that there is an all church choir. Do you know what the all church choir is? It's you. It's the congregation. So as I'm standing up here worshiping with the team today, I did notice something, and that's that not all of y'all sing. So I just want to remind you and encourage you that the Bible says just make a joyful noise. It's okay if you don't sing on pitch or you get the words wrong, like I did a couple times this morning. Come on, give some grace for everybody. But I do want to encourage you, man. There's something special that happens when you open up your own mouth and sing to the God who thought that you were a good idea to bring into the world. He thought about you. He came up with you. He said, the world needs this person. And sometimes I feel like it's actually the least we can do to just humble ourselves a little bit, be a little vulnerable, and just sing a song back to him. So I just want to encourage you as you continue to come here, man, open up your mouth and sing. I know it's a little bit loud. That's why. So if you sing off pitch, not anybody's going to know except the person sitting next to you. And for a lot of you, that's who you go to bed with every night. They don't care. They've, they know all your imperfections. A little bad singing is not going to offend them. But it's great when the people of God come together, we open up our mouths and we all sing. So it's just a little, that's off script encouragement. That's for free, maybe. Um, I want to tell you about something really exciting that we have going on today. Membership U. This is a class that we do once every quarter. It's an opportunity for you to come and to hear a little bit more about our vision and our strategies and how we build ministry. We're a family of churches. Though we're very much a local church, we are a part of something a little bigger than ourselves. So we get to talk to you about that how we got here, how this church got here, how Vintage came to be, and our vision for planting more churches to make it, frankly, hard to go to hell in Central Texas. That's why we exist. Amen? It's not our mission statement, but maybe it should be. That's what we want to do. We want to reach people who need Jesus. And in this class today, we'll get a chance to talk. You'll get a chance to ask questions. We'll go over some of our doctrine, theology. There's kind of no question off limits for me. You can ask. We'll just talk. And we're going to have some great food. How many's ever eaten at the Food Dude food truck? Anybody? So the same guy, part of our church, George Haddon runs Rush Coffee that we have out here often. He's got the Food Dude. And the Food Dude is providing a taco bar for our lunch today. We planned on a lot of you coming who didn't register because people in Liberty Hill don't register for stuff. I don't know why, but y'all don't register for stuff. But if you're here today and you'd like to come, know that we have plenty of food for you. If you've got little ones, we've got childcare taken care of. So when this service is over, you can go home, let the dogs out, take a cat nap, whatever you need to do, and then come back about 1215 and right after our second service, just behind this curtain, we will have our membership you class. So I hope to see you there. We are in week two of our new series called Nehemiah, A Time to Build. How many you know there's a time for everything including a time to build it seems like as culture gets further and further away from the principles and truths in the gospel there is a tearing and a rending of the church but Jesus says hey I'm gonna build my church and so we know that even in dark times it is still a time to build amen so we're gonna be talking about that quite a bit over the next few weeks last week we learned that the Bible is not just a history book that just tells us stuff that happened but it is revelation from God. It's an eternal book. And so while it does teach history, it also teaches us a lot about the character and nature of God and the character and nature of us, which is oftentimes fairly bleak. 
We learned that the Bible also teaches about cycles and patterns, and it shows us kind of how we respond, how we act, and what God does in the midst of it. And Nehemiah's story, in many ways, is the story of humanity. It didn't happen in a vacuum. It's a continuation of an age-old story. We talked about the pattern that we have seen in society over and over and over again, and I think we see it playing out in our own society. We talked about how it goes through this thing where people come to know God, Oh man, we know God, we're faithful to him. And then the next generation often tends to know just about God. And then we get three generations and like we talked about last week in Judges 6, it says a generation came and they knew not God. And that's a problem. And it's our job as the, as the family of faith, as the body of Christ, to make sure that we stay in the no God category. In our generation and in the one that comes next, and we train them how to stay in, and then we train the next one how to stay, and they train the next one how to stay. That is our mission and our job. I've heard it said this way too, that what is a priority in one generation becomes optional in the next generation, becomes unnecessary in the third generation. And so I encourage you, even as we think about coming to church and being here among spiritual family, man, make it a priority because if it's optional in your home, for your kids, it'll probably become unnecessary. I don't say that to scare you or to issue a curse over your family. I'm just telling you that's how human beings work. That's how cycles work. So if you want something to matter in your house, make it matter now and don't hope that it will matter later. Now, as we get back into Nehemiah, it's also good for us to remember, Nehemiah, he's not a priest. He's a normal guy. He's a normal guy. He's like you and like me. He's doing pretty well in life. He's got a good job, albeit a dangerous one, but he's living in a palace. He's a cupbearer for a king. He's earned a lot of trust and a lot of favor. And how many know if you're the cupbearer for the king, they want to keep you happy and trustworthy. So he's probably living pretty comfortably. And we talked about the fact that even though he's there, something happens. He gets word of something and he finds himself burdened. And today we're going to talk about the burden. But I want to encourage you as we go through this. There's a principle that Nehemiah lived out that Jesus didn't speak until many years later. In Matthew 6, he said, seek first the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, live righteously and he will give you everything that you need. I think Nehemiah knew this truth. Because you know, truth isn't invented. Truth is revealed or discovered, but it's always there. And all truth is God's truth. So this truth, even though Jesus hadn't uttered the words, and Matthew hadn't written it down yet. It's still true. When you seek first the kingdom of God, everything else will be added to you. But it's the seeking first that matters. So this week, we're going to zero in on the burden that Nehemiah had. Now, we did a lot of background last week, but frankly, a lot of this series is background. Understanding the context in which the things took place that Nehemiah did is so important. So I'm gonna just quickly hit a few of those from last week for some of you who are new and weren't here. And then there's a few other pieces of the background we didn't have time to get into and we're gonna dig even deeper. So again, just as a reminder, Nehemiah Cupbear, his background, he's living in exile in Persia, likely born there. Probably never even been to Jerusalem. This is where he is. He's serving King Artaxerxes as a layperson. Now, the historical context is that this is after the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah. We're at a time where Judah had fallen. The Babylonian Empire, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, had invaded Judah. And in 586 BC, the temple was destroyed and the Jews were taken as exiles into Babylon. But then we experienced a transition of power. In 539, led by King Cyrus, the Persians overcome the Babylonians. And now they are the ones who are in charge calling the shots. And King Cyrus, he allowed the Jews to return and rebuild Jerusalem. And he decreed this in 538. BC. One year, one year after he goes and conquers the Babylonians, 
God moves on his heart and he tells the people of God, the Jewish people, you can go and return to Jerusalem. And right here we have something that is a huge part of the backdrop of the story that I did not get to spend much time on last week. I want to spend a little time on it today. One of the things to note about this guy named King Cyrus is that he was God's unexpected instrument. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. God's unexpected instrument. How many ever had, had God use an unexpected person in your life? You're like, wait, you? You want to do that for me? You? You want to come in? You want to do that? You want me to partner with you? Unexpected. Listen, I have to tell you, God is the God of the unexpected. That's why what I expect is to see things I didn't expect. Because that's usually how it happens. Now, before we talk about what he did, there's a couple things you need to remember about him. I did tell you two or three of these last week, and then we're going to go deeper. Remember, he's not a Jew. He's a Persian, right? He didn't grow up hearing the stories about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He did not get taught the traditions of the Torah. No, he's just, he's his own guy. And yet, in God's sovereign wisdom, he chooses King Cyrus, a pagan king, to play a pivotal role in the restoration of Jerusalem. I wish you would just let that sink in for a second. God used a pagan king to play a pivotal role in the restoration of Jerusalem. That should break our paradigms a little bit, which is on purpose, by the way. Having our paradigms broken is helpful. Sometimes we can see things God's doing that we didn't see with our natural eyes. Here's this guy. He's not really a godly man, and yet God uses him. Sort of reminds me of someone whose lifestyle I wouldn't endorse, but God used him to put people in a Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. Guess what? God uses unexpected people. Now, Cyrus, he's not doing the spiritual work. He's not about that. But he is a supporter of the natural work that has to be done, which of course is always deeply connected to the spiritual work. How many know God is always, always, hear me, always working in the natural and in the supernatural. And I have a little tip for you for spiritual growth. If you're only seeing one or the other, you're missing it. Some people are so caught up just in the supernatural and every day is a new prophecy and every day is a new demon behind a bush and every day is all supernatural. And listen, God's moving in those spaces. But they have no idea what's going on in the world, in their own family, in their own house, in their own marriage, with their own children. It's just, man, I'm just, I'm just reading on the Elijah list today, getting the next prophecy. That's all good. But if you're just in this space, you're missing what God's doing in the natural. Now, over here, we have a lot of natural people who do a lot of navel gazing. And they just look at themselves all the time and their own problems. And they're just trying to make some money and get a bigger house and get a bigger car so they can come and praise God. Which, by the way, you should praise him when you don't have what you want. When he doesn't give you what you think you want. He's going to give you what you need. He's not going to give you what you want. We have people who are focused only on the natural. And they're looking at the natural and everything they're praying is in the natural. And they miss the supernatural that God is doing. It's just a little tip for free. If you're focused on one or the other, you're missing something. Open your eyes, open your heart, and see what God's doing in both spaces. Don't dismiss the supernatural because it's weird. Lean into it. Learn it and understand it. But don't dismiss the natural. Just wait and live in every day for Jesus to come back. He puts you here for a reason in a natural body to affect the natural landscape that you find yourself in. So now back to Cyrus. Let me get off that rant for a second. Let's spend a few minutes looking at how God used Cyrus how God used Cyrus. Number one, he issued a decree to rebuild the temple. 
So it's historical and it's important. Cyrus, Cyrus issued a proclamation that would now allow these former Babylonian exiles to return to Jerusalem. And this decree marked the end of the Babylonian exile and the beginning of the restoration of the Jewish community in their homeland. Number two, he acknowledged Yahweh. He's not a follower, but he acknowledged him. We see this in Ezra 1, 2. When he's issuing his proclamation, he states and says, it's the God of Israel who's given me power over all the kingdoms of the earth. He said, all right, well, I wasn't raised on you, but I think I'm convinced you're the one in charge and you gave me what I got. So you want me to do something for you? I'll do it for you. Even though he wasn't a follower of Yahweh, he wasn't a total unbeliever. He still had a sense of who God was. And there was something inside of him that wanted to honor that. And he did it quickly, by the way. I think that matters. One year after he took over. It's not like his kingdom is in ruin and he's searching for answers. That's when most of us turn to God, when everything else goes to crap. That's when a lot of people turn to God. But here he is, one year into his reign, after having conquered the Babylonians, and he's going, right now, I'm gonna honor the God of Israel. It's important to note. Not only did he allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem, but he also, I mentioned this one last week, but he returned all the silver and the gold that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from them. And in this way, he actually helped fund their restoration. Number four, he guaranteed safe passage. How many know it's one thing to go, oh yeah, you can go there. It's another thing to send an escort and to tell everybody, you stay out of their way, you let them go and do what they're going to do. I'm the king, I decree it. He did this. He ensured their protection. Number five, and this is a radical idea then, that maybe the Persians of today should adopt. He promoted religious freedom. He promoted religious freedom. By allowing the Jews to return to practice their faith freely, Cyrus sets a precedence of religious tolerance, religious liberty within the Persian Empire, which is quite different than the Persians of today, Iran, this murderous, God-hating country that wants to destroy every one of us. They could learn something from their ancient King Cyrus about religious liberty. And we, we, we should thank God that we live here and not there. I'm glad to be an American, as imperfect as it is, and as much as I'm happy to critique it, I'm so thankful to be in a place where we can gather and worship together like this, unafraid. Number six, he acknowledged Jewish leaders. Now this is a big deal, because most of the time people in power are control freaks, and how I many know they want their guys in charge? I need my guy to do this. But he doesn't. Ezra 1.8 tells him that he actually acknowledged and appointed Jewish leaders, such as Shesh Bazar, it's quite a bizarre name, to lead the first group of returning exiles. He didn't say, okay, you can go, but you gotta take all my people. My leaders are now your leaders. No, he acknowledged their leaders. This shows you something about leadership. You don't have to control everything. You can empower people that God's empowered. Number seven, his very existence was a fulfillment of prophecy. Touched on this last week a little bit, but Isaiah and Jeremiah both spoke really specifically about a man named Cyrus who would become a king who would release the Jewish people from exile, and now it's happening. Okay, so now, why is all this significant? Why is this significant? You're like, Pastor Nate, there's a lot of history. Why does it matter, right? It's, first of all, it speaks volumes about the character and nature of God, which you should be interested in as people of God. It tells you that he has an ability to use anybody for his divine purposes. Anybody. Some of you are here today and you think God's done with you. I came here today to tell you nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further. If you woke up this morning, you took that breath, that breath was a gift from God, his grace. And that breath is his statement to you saying, I'm not done with you yet. 
So don't disqualify what God's still waiting to use, even if it's you. But how many know we also have a tendency to put people in a box? Well, God can use this person, but that guy, do you know what he's done? Do you know what he said? Do you know where he's been? We have this thing where we want everybody to be all good or all bad. We over-moralize every person. Here's the dirty little secret. All of us have some good and all of us have more than some bad. And some of you, some of you have lived long enough to know that you've done some really bad stuff and then watch God use you later on. Newsflash, he knew all the stuff you were gonna do before he called you to do this. He knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. So the only person that can disqualify you is you. God's waiting to redeem, to restore, to reactivate, to captivate, to empower, to send you back on mission. And if you woke up today, you still have one. Congratulations. Story of Cyrus teaches us this. God uses unexpected people in unexpected places. Some people want the perfect, right? They want Jesus to be president. I've seen some billboards, Jesus for president. I'm like, that's cute. It's not happening. Like when he comes back, he's not the president of America. He's going to return on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to be the king of the whole world. Not your president, no more democracy, definitely a theocracy and a dictator named Jesus, the benevolent one who you're going to like. But until then, he ain't on the ballot. So we should take this concept of God using Cyrus when we go into the voting booth and go, okay, even if someone is not a follower of Yahweh, here's a question. Will they enact godly principles? Will they achieve godly outcomes? If yes, get my vote. If no, I'm not voting for you. But I'm not looking for Jesus. I'm looking for what you're gonna do. I'll settle for people who don't follow God but still write policy and govern according to godly principles, amen? It's not a political message, but there's some ramifications in here that we should consider come November. Anyway, some of y'all are like, gosh, can he just move on from this? We know that God uses people who have massive sin and disobedience to bring people out of exile. But we also know that it was the massive sin and disobedience of the Jewish people that got their behinds into exile. So yes, there's consequences. Yes, stuff will happen. But yes, God can deliver you right back out of it. And there's always a remnant. And Cyrus was aware of the remnant. God was aware of the remnant. And he used them to start to rebuild. Keep that in mind. Again, why does this matter? Because in our lives, in our jobs, in our families, in our politics... There's going to be some unlikely instruments of God's grace. Remember what I said? If you're only looking at the natural, oh, I can never vote for that person. If you're only looking at the spiritual, I can never vote for anybody. God's moving in the midst of both of them. It's important for the people of God to understand that. Keep your head on a swivel. God, what are you saying? What are you doing? What are you saying? What are you doing? What are you saying? Oh, you said it to me? Okay, I'll go do the doing. This is how it works. Not everybody's gonna fit your mold of a typical believer. I told you my wife and I went to Mexico with 300 other pastors. Some of them I wouldn't go to their churches and some of them wouldn't come to mine. But God uses different kinds of people to reach different kinds of people. And I actually came home so encouraged, by the way, that there were people following God, building the kingdom that I didn't even really get along with. But it doesn't matter because a lot of people don't get along with me. And God has sent people and appointed leaders and pastors and shepherds to cover them all. So I know I'm not for everybody, but there is a pastor for everybody. 
And I'm so thankful that there are people that I don't agree with all their theology, I don't agree with all their practices, who are out there building the same kingdom that I'm trying to help build, which is Jesus' kingdom. And that actually encourages me. It does. And I'm not talking about apostates who tear big sections out of their Bible, but there's a lot of ways of doing things. And there's a lot of different personalities to do it. And that should encourage all of us. But if Cyrus serves no other purpose in our world today, let him serve as a reminder to never estim- underestimate excuse me, the people around us. Our job is not to dismiss people because we've seen something we don't like. Our job is to exercise hope, faith, and love and expect the unexpected in how God might move. All right, a few more points of background. Number four, they're rebuilding the temple and the walls. The first group of people return in 538 BC, and Ezra tells us a bit about this. Let's throw up Ezra chapter three, verses seven to eight. Then the people hired masons and carpenters and bought cedar logs from the people of Tyre and Sidon, paying them with food and wine and olive oil. It's the only part that's good about an olive right there, the olive oil. The logs were brought down from the Lebanon mountains and floated along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa for the King Cyrus had given permission for all this. The construction of the temple began in mid-spring and during the second year after they arrived in Jerusalem. The workforce was made up of everyone who had returned from exile, including Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltel, Jehua, the son of Zehazodok. I don't know how to pronounce this stuff. I practice it a hundred times and come here and see this word I'm like a cow to Newgate. What kind of name is that? I don't know. Don't name your kid that. Do him a favor. And his fellow priests and all the Levites, finally we can pronounce something. The Levites who were all, watch this, 20 years old or older were put in charge. How many of y'all want 20-year-olds in charge of stuff? I don't know, God did. Don't let anyone despise you because you're young. The Levites who were 20 years old or older were put in charge of rebuilding the Lord's temple. This is what's going on, man. There's work, there's activity happening. There's logs coming in, floating down the rivers from the mountains. The king's giving approval. God's putting 20-year-olds in charge. I don't know why. Unexpected things, remember? But God is building. He's rebuilding. He's rebuilding. And the second group of people who are now led by Ezra, they show up in 458 BC and they start to work on spiritual reformation, religious and social reformations. Nehemiah comes a few years later in 445 BC and now he's focused on rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the city, fortifying this thing that's gonna preserve a place for God's people. But of course, number five, along the way, he's going to experience some opposition and some challenges. One thing you have to know about following God is that you will always say always. You will always say it again. You will always experience opposition and challenges when you are trying to accomplish God's work. You know why? Because his work is always ground-taking. That means you are taking something I got any old school Pentecostals in here? I went to the enemy's camp and I took back what he stole from me. All right, it's just me and Beth. Praise the Lord. That's, that's why you're my worship leader right there. Everything that God does is ground taking. There's no neutral space. Do you know this? There's no neutral space. So when the kingdom of God advances, it advances on the kingdom of darkness. And if you think that you're going to be a part of that and not experience opposition and challenges, you're mistaken. And by the way, if you've been following Jesus for a while and you're not experiencing opposition, opposition and challenges, it might not be his kingdom that you're involved in building. The enemy will push back. The enemy will try to stop. He will try to destroy. If you're not experiencing opposition, it may not be his kingdom. That's your building. 
God's work is always ground taking. And by the way, in a wicked culture, that makes it disruptive. Now there's some businessmen in the room and you know that disruption can sometimes be good for business. You get a new disruptive technology, it comes along and changes everything, right? It's like AI now, ChatGPT, one of the most disruptive pieces of software to ever come out. The explosion and the use of it dwarfs computers, cell phones, everything else. We're talking over 10 million users in like three days that it came out. Disruption. Now jobs change, people's jobs change, some jobs go away, some new jobs are created. Let me tell you, when the kingdom of God advances into wicked culture, it's even more disruptive than that. And the ones who it disrupts are not happy about it. And sometimes the disruption of the advancement of the kingdom of God offends our woke sensibilities because we care more about tone than we care about truth. Yes, Jesus is kind, but I was studying in Joshua just this past week with my high schoolers in the Old Testament. When he showed up to Joshua, he showed up as a Christophany with a sword in his hand. Joshua said, whose side are you on, me or the enemy? He said, I'm on my own side. I'm on the Lord's side. If you want me on your side, get on my side with a sword in his hand. When he comes back, he's gonna have one coming out of his mouth and fire in his eyes and a tattoo that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Bible says the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Yahweh is his name. Sometimes the disruption of the kingdom is a little offensive. Whoa, why are you being so intense? Why do you have a sword in your hand, bro? Because I've come to cut away everything that stands in my way. This is how Jesus works. And we're gonna have a whole message in a couple weeks on the opposition that Nehemiah faced. But let me just give you an overview of that as well. First of all, the people of Tekoa, they wouldn't cooperate with him or any of his supervisors. He's got this group of people and they're like, no, I'm just not doing it. I'm not doing the work you've asked me to do. He was ridiculed and plotted against by Sanballat and Tobiah. It's in Nehemiah 2. He received threats of violence from his enemies. That's in Nehemiah 4. A trap was laid to derail his mission and rebuilding a wall. Also in Nehemiah 4. There was a plot to kill him. He's trying to rebuild the wall. He's trying to rebuild a place for God's people to live in peace. And yet, others around don't like him, so they want to kill him. Come off the wall. Let's go have a talk in the woods. No, I can't come down. The work is too great, he says. He gets opposition from Jewish nobles in Nehemiah 4. He gets false prophets that come to try to discourage him and talk about him, Nehemiah 6. He gets false accusations also in Nehemiah 6, just to name a few. And despite all these challenges and oppositions, Nehemiah led the people with determination and succeeded in rebuilding the wall. We have to understand this didn't happen because he was rugged, because he was tough, although it was probably those things. This didn't happen because he was so great at having a thick skin and a soft heart, which we all should have. This happened because Nehemiah had absorbed a godly burden. And when you take on a burden for the Lord, who's ever been burdened by God for something? When you get a burden from the Lord, it's like, whew, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. So last week I talked to you about how to attract the favor of God on your life. Today in my last few minutes before we close, I wanna show you five characteristics of the burden. Five characteristics of what it looks like to carry God's burden. First of all, number one, the burden has to include compassion for God's people. Nehemiah chapter one and verse four says this. He says, when I heard all this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. 
My friends, this is a picture of what it looks like to have a godly burden hit you. I know you're tough, you don't cry, whatever. When the burden of God hits you, your emotions and your control over your senses start to dissipate. God will sit on you with the burden. And you might laugh, you might cry, things might happen that were unexpected because God's a God of the unexpected. But we have to let his burden rest on us. And specifically, a way you can know it's God's burden is that God will burden you with compassion for people. Even people who are working against you, even wicked people who are working against our children. God's burden will cause you, yes, to be angry at the outcome, but to have compassion towards the soul. Nehemiah was devastated when he found out the conditions of his house. David had a zeal for the Lord's house too. Look at Psalm 137. It says this, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget how to play the harp. Take some work from the right hand to learn how to play something. It's a big part of David's life. He spent years playing music to calm the demons around Saul to get him to leave so he could have some peace. He had a prophetic gift for chasing away the darkness with his music. And I'm certain he used it in his own life as well. And yet he says, if I don't care about your stuff, take it all away. Take it all away. I don't want any more. Paul shows us how to have a burden for the people. Romans 12, 15. He says this, rejoice with those who rejoice, who's heard it, and weep with those who weep. Have a compassion for the people. Jesus, of course, had compassion for the people. The Bible says he looked on them with great compassion like a sheep, like a bunch of sheep without a shepherd, lost and gone astray. Oh, how I wish I could gather you all, like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. He had a compassion for people long before he went to the cross. And it's this burden that Jesus had that actually led him to the cross, through the cross, into the resurrection, and now building his church, his compassion for people. Number two, I talked about prayer a bit last week. So won't belabor it, but prayer is something that both attracts the presence of God in your life and the favor of God in your life, but also it will, is the place and space where God transfers his burdens to you. Nehemiah 1.6 says, please listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. You wanna get God's burden? Pray about what God cares about. Sometimes all we pray about is ourselves. Lord, help me with this new job. Help me with this test. Help me with this financial obligation. Help me with this relationship. How about, God, what's on your heart tonight? What are you burdened about? Because I want to pray about it with you. Anybody do that? You don't have to raise your hand, but you should. You should. Persistent prayer. And you get to ask for your stuff. Philippians 4.16, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. That's part of it. But that can't be all of it. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, never stop praying. If you want to carry God's burden, you got to talk to God. Number three, you have to have the courage to act. If you don't act on it, you haven't got the burden. You've got information. you got something to think about. I'll consider that. Maybe. It's once you have the courage to act that you know you've taken on the burden. Look at Nehemiah 2, 4 and 5. The king asked him, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it pleases the king, and if you're pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. Hello, he's the king's cupbearer. You think the king wants to lose him? No, 
but he has the courage to go to the king. Who could, who could, who could destroy him? He could say, wait, you want to leave me? You want to take people with you? You want to take my money and go rebuild the town that some other dude who I just conquered destroyed? No. He had the courage to act. He had the courage to act. James 2, 26 says this, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith, faith is dead without good works. You can say you have faith all day long. If you don't use it, you don't have it. That's just what the Bible teaches. Esther four sixteen, and then, though it is against the law, read this one last week, I'll go to the king, and if I must die, I must die. I haven't said this in a while, so I say it. I preach is good, and it lives hard, but it's true. It's a disposition of courage. Number four, strategic planning and wise action. Nehemiah couldn't go off half-cocked. He had a plan. And he got with some other leaders and got some other plans. How many know it takes strategy and planning to do something great for God? You don't just take off and go do it. It's important. Right? Who sets out to build a house? Luke 4, 28. I know I'm skipping on you, Trevor. It's three down, Luke 4, 28. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin a construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money for it? This is Jesus talking. He said, hey, have a plan. You want to accomplish something? Have a plan for it. But back to Nehemiah 2, 7 and 8. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the provinces of west of Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories. You know why Cyrus gave him safe travel? Because he asked for it. You have not because you asked not. You've heard this before. He got what he needed because he had the courage to ask for it. But he's doing it strategically. Proverbs 16, 3. Commit your actions to the Lord and your plans, not your thoughts, not your hopes, not your dreams. Your plans will succeed. You want to do something great for God? Make a plan. If you don't have a plan, it's not going to happen. Ask people, I want to do this. What's your plan? Hmm. Well, let's find a plan. It's just simple. It's biblical. And finally, number five. If you want to carry God's burden, there has to be a sacrifice for God's house within you. It has to be a yes to say, yes, I'll sacrifice for you, God, for your people, for what you're building. Nehemiah 5.10. I myself, as well as my brothers and my workers, have been lending the money, people out, lending the money, people, excuse me, lending the people money and grain. I don't know why those words flip. It's never happened before. But now, let us stop this business of charging interest. He's saying, hey, we're gonna help people out. We're not gonna use them. We're not gonna make money off of them. We're gonna help them. First John three seventeen. if someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother and sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be inside that person? Galatians 6, 2, share each other's burdens and in this way, obey the law of Christ. These are characteristics of Nehemiah. He didn't go it alone. He wasn't just doing it because he was just hot-headed and angry. He was burdened. He went to prayer. He gained some courage, and he took everyone along with him. And as he's out there, he's not the only one on the wall. He's with his brothers. He's with his sisters. He said, hey, let's go together. You need something? Let's get that taken care of. And here in the house of God, among God's people, if we really want to know if we have God's heart for people, just ask yourself, when's the last time I picked up someone else's burden? When's the last time I really said, hey, I'm gonna pray for you, and I did it? It's important. Some of you guys get annoyed with me because you ask me for prayer, and then we just do it right there. It's with a guy at the lunch on Thursday. Let's pray about this. Okay, let's pray right now. In the middle of the restaurant. Some of that's because if I don't do it, then I'm probably never gonna do it. 
Some of us, because if it's important enough to ask me to pray, then let's pray right now. I'm gonna be done because I don't wanna load you down, but take this away today. When's the last time you've really carried somebody else's burden in prayer greater than your own? We spend a lot of time praying about our own burdens. One of the ways you can know if you've got God's heart for people is if you're carrying their burdens back to him on their behalf. I have a good friend here in the room, Mark Harwick. He prays for me all the time, I know. He helps carry the burden, the spiritual burden of this house. You know how? Not by only praying for everything he's got going on, but for praying for me as your pastor because he knows I need it. I know many others of you do that too, but he said early on, this is my calling here. It's part of what God sent me here to pray for you. Thank God for you, Brother Mark. Thank God for you. I thank God for you literally every day. I appreciate you. And thank you for demonstrating what it looks like to carry people's burdens and to carry the burden that God has for his people and for the house. May we all be that way. Would you bow your heads with me as we close? Lord, I thank you. I thank you for these great stories that we can learn from and glean from. Lord, I thank you that you are the God of the unexpected, that you don't cancel people, that you cleanse people, and you cover people, and you lift people up, and you change people. God, I thank you that you have called us to partner with you. I don't really know why you did, because I wouldn't have, but you did. You said, I wanna work in and through people. And so I stand grateful gratitude, God, that you, you could have dispensed with all of us, but you said, no, I'm going to work in and through you. I'm going to build my church, but you're going to help. Lord, I pray today for those, God, who maybe have, maybe some in this room who've never carried a burden except their own. Lord, I pray that you would teach us and show us and come sit on our chest in the middle of the night if you have to, but Lord, help us to know how to tap in to your burden, to what you're concerned with and to partner with you in it. Lord, when we set out to build your kingdom, we have to do it your way. We have to care about the things you care about. And Lord, I pray today for every person in this room that you would help us to do that, that you would help us to hear your voice, Lord, to know your word, to discern what's true and what's not, and then give us the courage to act. Lord, you've called us to do great and mighty things, and we're so grateful and so thankful. While everyone's head is bowed and eyes are closed, there may be somebody in this room who says, I'm not a part of building God's kingdom because I don't even know him. I've canceled myself and others have canceled me. I've sinned too much, I've gone too far. I don't think Jesus, when he said, I wanna build my church through you, I don't think he was talking about me. There may be someone in here today, you've disqualified yourself and you're not following Jesus, not because he's not calling, but because you don't think you can get up and go. And I wanna to say to you, today is your day to get up and go. In just a moment, I wanna pray for you. But if you're here and you're saying, I need to say yes to Jesus for the first time, or maybe the first time in a long time, or maybe even say yes to him about some part of your life that you thought was off limits to him. You're ready to yield right now. In this moment, I want you to raise your hand. Go ahead, no one's looking around but me, but I wanna know who I'm praying for. I need to give my life to Jesus. I see you, I see you never the only one. I'm going to yield to God today. Today's a new day. I disqualified myself, but thank you, Jesus, for not disqualifying me. Anybody else? It's a part of my life. I need to give to you, Jesus. If everyone in the room would go ahead and just stand up on your feet.
I'm gonna ask all of us to pray this together. If you're praying it for the first time or the first time in a long time or you've been following Jesus well, let's all open up our mouths if we're saying yes to Jesus and let's pray this together. Jesus, I come to you today. Humble of heart, needy in my spirit. I recognize that you are the king, that you are the Lord, that you are the maker of heaven and earth. I confess that you came here and lived a perfect life that you went to the cross for me, that you died and were resurrected and now give your resurrection life to me. Lord, today I need you and I want you. I want your burden to be my burden. I want your will to be my will. I want your desires to be my desires. I give you all that I am, body, mind, and soul. It all belongs to you. Fill me with your spirit and help me to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. You can stay connected with us at Vintage.Church or on Facebook by searching Vintage Church TX. At Vintage, we believe church is more than a place or a weekend activity. It's a spiritual family where Jesus is the center of our lives personally and our relationships collectively. If you're in the Liberty Hill area, we would love to have you join us this week. You can learn more about us, our service time, and plan your visit by visiting Vintage.Church slash Liberty Hill. We hope to see you soon.